Hey, we're starting a brand new series. It's going to be a four-week series. Jason and I are going to be preaching this, and it's out of the book of Esther. And if you have never read Esther, I'm going to challenge you this week uh, to do that. It is a tremendous story. Actually, I'm going to tell you, I believe it's a tremendous historical account. I want to give you just a few little fun facts about the book of Esther. First, and this may kind of come as a surprise to you, but God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. The word Yahweh or Father or anything like that, anything about worship or anything about even the Jewish sacrificial system is not included in the book of Esther. There's a couple other really cool things about it. The account of Esther actually is going to initiate what comes through this account is this celebration, another feast day for the Jewish people, and it's called the Feast of Purim that comes from the word pure, P-U-R. And pure means uh, dice, all right? And in essence, if you read the story, you're gonna find out that uh, Dice was thrown to determine when the Jewish people would be annihilated out of the Persian and Media kingdom. But what we're going to see in this, the irony of ironies, is that though God's name is not mentioned in this, God is working in the background all the time. As you read through the book over the course of this week or over the course of the next few weeks, I want you to keep this one word in your mind, reversal. Because what you're going to see, you're going to see the high and the mighty and the powerful and their lives being completely reversed. You're going to see kind of the meek and the lowly whose lives are completely reversed. People of prominence become nothing. And people of nothing become people of prominence. And it's all because of God's sovereignty. As you read through this, you will see what you may say is coincidences. But I will tell you, it is God's sovereignty. It is God working in the background. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive in and we're gonna do a lot of reading. We're gonna cover the first one and a half chapters of Esther and then we're gonna land this plane. So if you got your Bibles, let's go ahead and open it up. It starts off right here in chapter one, verse one. And the writer says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. Now, I should have a map up here in just a minute. Sorry, Katie. I want you to see this. This is Xerxes' kingdom, okay? There's 127 provinces, countries that are uh, uh, involved in this. This is... Xerxes and the Persian and Media in, uh, kingdom is the first world superpower. It stretches as far west as you can see to almost Italy and as far east as to India. 
Its capital, one of its capitals is Susa. And where we are, we are in the third reign or third year of King Xerxes' reign, who is going to reign for about 19 years, all right, who took over this kingdom from Darius I. Many of you are going to be familiar with Darius because he is mentioned in the book of Daniel. Xerxes is actually the son of Darius I. And after Xerxes, his son is going to take over the kingdom. But what's ironic here is that Xerxes, in the last year, the way that he lost power of the kingdom was that he was murdered. He was assassinated. And his son, Artaxerxes I, took over the kingdom. But that's a whole other story. So this is where we are. We're in the third reign, uh, third year of King Xerxes' reign. There's this massive, massive power, world power at, at, uh, happening here. And in verse 2, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from the royal throne at the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Now, I love this. It's going to go on, and what we're going to read here is that we're going to see what this, this, these festivities were. And you're going to see the wealth and the opulence that this king has and how he is really, truly trying to show off of that I am the man. So with that, starting in verse 4. For a full 180 days, six months, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to, uh, to silver rings on, a marble, on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, I think that's how you pronounce it, marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant. In keeping with the king's liberality. Verse 8 By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. I cannot help but think about this. This was a fraternity party that kicked out the doors of everything else. Now, I don't know how many of y'all ever did this. But fraternity parties were only as good as long as the beer was flowing. As soon as the beer flowed, stopped, it was terrible, and everybody left. This is what's happening here. This is a massive party, and what he is doing, he is showing off his wealth. There's arrogance here. There is a display, a despicable display of wealth. And I love how he talks about that there's these gold goblets and no one was the same. What he's done is he's showing all of the spoils of war that he has. 
You don't know what you're drinking from. You could be drinking from a goblet from a king in India or something that came from Egypt. But this is the opulence that he has. Now, it's going to go on here, starting in verse, um, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits, I need for you to read drunk, all right? <laughs> when King Xerxes was trashed from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Now, I've always been told when you're gonna start reading names of people in the Old Testament, just say them like you own it, okay? So here we go. Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha. See, that's the one that I don't know. All right. Zether and Carcass, or Kerkis, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, I'm going to put my Captain Obvious hat on here for just a moment, okay? Guys, if you go on a 187-day bender, don't expect your wife to be receptive to you, Okay? What's amazing here, one, that Vashti said no. But what's equally amazing is to see the hubris of this king who after 187 days of doing what he wants to do, showing off who he thinks he is, showing off what he thinks that he collected, and he gets put in his place by his wife. Now, this story gets ugly here in just a minute because what we're going to see is Vashti is about to lose her crown over this. So we're going to go on here. Uh, since it was, I'm in verse 13, and I don't think we have a slide for this, but it, since it was customary for the kings to consult experts in matters of the law, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. Fools. And were closest to the kings. Now, I'm not going to read these names because they're terrible, okay? But what it is, is the king, all of a sudden, he wants what he wants when he wants it and he doesn't get it. And so he begins to have a temper tantrum. He begins to act like a three-year-old. And so he brings his, his attendants around and he brings his wise men. And I want you to think about guys that are looking at the stars, astrologers, okay? And he's trying to get wisdom from these men that have no wisdom. But what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we got a problem here, king, and there's a problem that, that's gonna affect all of us. 
And what's crazy about this is Vashti was asked seven times by seven different men to come to see the king. And each time she said no. Now, it's very easy for us to put text into the text or put our thoughts and our Western culture into this and add to the story. For example, after about the third time of Ashti being asked to come and be before the king, I wonder if she started mouthing off to her friends. I am, I'm not going. How dare he do that? He's been drunk for six months. There's no way I'm going out there. He wants me to come and parade me around like some prize. I am not a golden goblet. I'm a human being. But there's a great sense of disobedience in this. And so the wise men realize that this could happen and there's panic that sets in with them. When the attendants came back and they said, she's not coming. He brought his men together. The king brought the men together. And in verse 16, then Mamukin, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Mamukin replied in the presence of the king. He's kind of like the top noble of the king. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people and the providence of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to the disrespect and discord. Do you hear the panic in their voice? These are the nobles. Now understand again, we are 2,500 years removed. So this is very much a cultural aspect of what's happening here. But I also believe that there is a sense of fear that has come into these men. And here are the two consequences that they came up with when Vashti said no. When Vashti said, Queen Vashti says, I will not participate in this. First, in verse 18, therefore, if it pleases the king, now this is uh, uh, Mamukin again, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of the Persian and the Me- Persia and Media, which is irrevocable. Once it's been ver- verbalized, it has to come to pass. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of, the, of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she is. Vashti in a moment not only loses her crown, but she loses her identity and her status in her disobedience. The second part of this, Mamut goes on, he says... The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all the parts of this kingdom, to pretty much all of the known world at that time, to each province in his own script and, in, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household 
using his native tongue. Now, fast forward 2,500 years to ourselves to this time. This is misogynist at best. Think about that. This is the decree that these men came up with. I am the man in my house, and we will talk the way that I talk. Just in case, just in case there is any question about this, I'm the man. What I see in this is control. It's control. And control is an act that comes out of fear. If I can control the situation, if I can control the individual, I can control the outcome. Now again, I understand that this is cultural from 2,500 years ago. But the application, guys, for us is that we are partners with our spouses. Equal in value, equal in worth, bone of bone and flesh of flesh. We, husbands and wives, we make a formidable team when we work together. Vashti lost everything in her disobedience. Now we're going to roll in and we're going to meet the two heroes, two main characters because God is the hero. Let's call them our underdogs. It's Mordecai and Esther. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, and the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Background. There's a great, finally the southern tribes, Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians. They're taken, this is, this is, the book of Daniel, when we start reading about the book of Daniel, the Jews have been taken out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been decimated by the Babylonians. All right? And so there's this great dispersion of the Jews. There's this great exile of the Jews. They have lost their identity and they've been taken to Babylon. And Mordecai is one of those people. And so he is there, out of his country, away from the temple. The temple has been destroyed anyways. The walls of, of Jerusalem have been torn down. So this is where we have, where we have Mordecai right now. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther. She had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Esther is an orphan. 
Esther has lost literally everything. But Mordecai takes her in. The story's going to go on here because the king has decided, wow, you know, three years without a queen, it's time for me to get a queen. And so again, these wise men come together and they have this idea, I know, let's have a beauty contest. Let's go around to all of our 127 countries and we're going to select people to find the prettiest women in the nation. And we're going to bring them in and you get to choose who's going to be your next queen. Now, I will tell you, so many of us are going to think this is like The Bachelor, all right? Where you got women that are vying, are, are, are trying everything they can to get on this show. I will tell you, keep in mind, we're 2,500 years removed. So if I go back 2,500 years, when the king speaks, things happen. And so if you just happen to be a really attractive young lady, guess what? You no longer have a choice. You become part of this process. And it's the very thing that's going to happen to Esther Esther doesn't have a choice. It's not like she tried out for this. And you're going to see as you read through this that Mordecai was actually very concerned for her because he checked in on her every day as much as he could. Mordecai's a good guy. But Esther has no choice. The writer goes on. Verse eight, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had a charge of the harem. Before a young woman's term came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Now, I will tell you, in this year-long process, before you even got to go see the king, there was some pampering going on. Your nails were done, ladies, all right? Makeup was applied. It was a spa day for a year. But it was also, and we need to understand that Esther, coming from nothing, all of a sudden, God is absolutely providing for her. Because part of this is now she doesn't have to worry about where food is coming from. She doesn't have to worry about where clothing is coming from. She is living in the palace. And God's hand is on her. The writer goes on. And finally, it was her day to go before the king. In verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, I love this. 
Apparently, these ladies, when they went to go meet the king, they were allowed to take items to make themselves more appreciated by the king. And I just wonder, I just wonder if Esther's instructions were this. Esther, you're enough. You just be you. Go. And she went. Now the king was attracted to Esther, verse 17, more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set on her head this orphan, a royal crown, and made her queen instead of Ashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. She went from last to first, from an orphan to royalty. As I've been reading this and, and really trying to wrestling with what's the application in this, I can't help but go back and look at these four characters that have been introduced to us. We have King Xerxes, prideful, arrogant, powerful man. In a number of the secular history writings, he was apparently a very attractive man, very muscular, but he was a bit of a buffoon. There's Queen Vashti, who equally, I believe, from what I've read, was a very attractive woman. But she also had a hardness to her. And there was a sense of disobedience, but there was also a sense of she was gonna be her own person, which I don't think there's anything wrong with. But there's still this idea that in our desire to be strong, we can leave God out of the equation and we become disobedient. I would tell you, I think Xerxes was oblivious to God because I believe he thought himself to be equal if not above God. It's hard not to think that when everything that you could ever ask or imagine or want could be brought to you. I think there's application for us in a very affluent society. There are times that we will forget that we really do need a God. I have fresh drinking water. I have three cars in the driveway because one for me and my wife and our son. If I'm hungry, I go to the refrigerator it's easy for us to forget sometimes that we need a God and that we have a God. But I could also be like Queen Vashti and be in defiance, saying I don't need a God. I have everything I need. 
and I'm good. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it when I want to do it. There are consequences to that, though. The third person that we're introduced to is Mordecai. Mordecai is a protector. Mordecai comes from a lowly position. You've got to understand that he was actually taken into captivity. He was a slave. He had no, no zero nobility within the Persia media kingdom. And you're going to see this, though, but he really was not only a protector of Esther, but he became a protector of King Xerxes as well. And then finally we have Esther, our true underdog, an orphan, an outcast, or she could have been an outcast. When her mother and father passed away, she literally had nothing. But Mordecai stepped in. But yet I believe as we see from the eunuch that was caring for Esther in the harem, she was enough in her own right. But most importantly, even though she may not have wanted to do and be where she was, she still remained obedient. This is the punchline for this. I believe that Mordecai and Esther are truly the underdogs. And it's why, if you haven't read this account, when you read it, you are going to find yourself cheering for Mordecai. You're going to be cheering for Esther. We love the underdogs. We love the stories of people who have overcome so many different obstacles in their lives. Those people that seem like they only get one talent, you only get one shot at this, but they take their shot and they do everything they can and they end up being victorious. We love those stories. And you know why we love those stories so much? It's because all of us, Every single one of us, there's some part of our life where we are the underdog. There is something that continues to own us that is out of our control, that we cannot master on our own, that we cannot get rid of. What is the one thing in your life? What are the 10 things in your life that you keep going back to over and over and over again and you know they don't work, but I don't know what else to do? This is the story of God being the hero that comes in for the underdog. And though it may seem like the deck is stacked against us, that God is working in the background to take us from our lowly place to a place of great prominence. Because at one point, all of us were apart from Jesus Christ. All of us were separated from God. And in that separation from God, though we may not have recognized it, we could not have been any lower on the rung. But it is Christ who brings us up. 
and makes us victorious and gives us victory when we finally realize, I can't do this. I need you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on out. I want to share something with you. There's a great account in Jesus' ministry. And I know we just covered this in um, our last series. But I think it's important that we look at this again because I think it ties right in with what's happening here in the first chapter and a half with Esther. There is the account of this rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus gives him this great ultimatum. Said, you wanna be in my kingdom? Okay. Sell all that you have and come and follow me. And scripture says that the young man was downcast in his heart and he walked away because he had great wealth. The disciples then began to start asking uh, Jesus, hey, listen, we've given up everything for you. Where else can we go? Let me just read this. This is Matthew 19. There's in it a slide for it. I just want, to hear, want you all to hear this. Jesus, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good things must I do to have eternal life? Jesus replies, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter, uh, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The young ruler asked. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, disciples. Truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard. It's not impossible. It's hard. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, you ready for this? Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much 
They will inherit eternal life. But this is the key. And this is what I see from Esther. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last. And the many who are last will be first. When God is working in the background, when we get out of our way and we allow God to work in the background of our life, he takes us from a lowly place and places us in a seat of honor. We go from the underdog to the victor because of Jesus Christ. Not something I did. It's what Jesus does in us. Jesus is the victor in all things. So this is my question for you today. Where are you? Maybe you feel like Queen Vashti and you're sitting pretty high and mighty. Or maybe you feel like you're King Xerxes. I'm good. I got everything I need. What else do I need? Or maybe you're Mordecai. Or maybe you're Esther. Who thinks that they don't deserve a God. They don't deserve provision. They don't need being looked after because of all the things that I've done. But that's just it. Jesus brings us in. He washes us up. He nourishes our soul. He lifts our chin up. And he says, you are enough because you are a son or a daughter of the King. Father God, we come to you and I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you and how you take the lowly things and lift them high. I thank you that even us in our sinfulness, you saw it, you were there, you know it, but yet you still say you, that we can be your children. Father, may we not think we've got to get everything into one sock and then come to you. It's you that gets everything organized for us. It's you that pours in. It's you that your wisdom uh, flows in us and through us. And so God, I come to you broken and I'm okay being last. God, may all of us be last because it's the model that you showed us. You left the splendor of heaven and became a servant. You came not to be served, but to serve. And because of that, you, you are seated high and mighty. God, I'm, I'm really comfortable with just eating the crumbs from your table. But for those of us that are in Christ, you seat us at the table. Father, if there's anyone in the sound of my words that doesn't think that they are worthy to sit at your table, I ask that they would humbly empty themselves and ask you to be Lord. 
Father, if that is anybody here, may these words that they are going to speak to you be forever changing in their life. God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I'd be more than happy to eat the crumbs from your table. But Lord, I'm asking you to be just that, Lord of my life. And so will you come and will you fill me with your presence and your spirit? Will you forgive me of my sins? And may I begin to walk a newness of life in you. And I pray this in the name of of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, listen, if this was you today, if you accepted Jesus for the first time today, I'm going to ask you to do something really bold. We're going to have the prayer team up here in just a moment. Myself, I'll be down here as well. I'm going to ask that you would just simply come in, come forward, let us know. We want to embrace you. We don't want to embarrass you. We want to begin walking with you and take you from the person that is below the table and remind you and to help you understand that God actually has a seat at the table for you. And some of you have been pushing away from the table, thinking you got it, or you don't need Jesus, or I'm good enough, or you've been defiant or obstinate. I think it's time that you come and that you lay those ideas and those thoughts that you're better than God at this altar. I know I need to, did it this morning. What is your next step? God, thank you for the account of Queen Esther. Thank you of how you work in the background and how you take all of us as underdogs and in you, you make us victors. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus.